Hi, and welcome to another episode of Growpod, where we talk to those that defy the convention from the industries of sports, media, finance, or politics. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kira McKenna. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Now, before we delve into what I believe is one of our most exciting guests, um, who's had a rather colorful and extraordinary career. To, to uh, put it lightly. Yes, to put it lightly indeed. Um, just want to check in. How are things? Um, I know you've you've been out of action for a while. Yeah, been out of action for pretty much most of the season. Uh, but yeah, got my operation in November. That seemed to solve the issues in my knee and now uh, pretty close to returning. I think a little bit of training this week and returning to full training next week. So um very excited to finally be over that. Yeah, the awkward situation in this case is that we're both centre backs and live together. Huh? So yeah, very awkward, competitive. Yeah. But so if you don't see any bro pod episodes <laughs> uh, in a couple of weeks, you'll you'll know the reason why. No, uh, but you uh, you just featured in a five 0 win in yeah. the Scottish Cup. Vance to the Scottish Cup, and clean then clean sheet. Uh, sheet, and then we uh, and then we draw a very easy opponent in Rangers yeah. at home. So that'll be a nice festivity. It'll be Celtic and then Rangers in a short span of time. Now we now that we go into uh, our guest, which is why we're here, uh, we had Mark Noonan online. Now, I mean, he's had a very uh, very colorful career. We're very very excited to share that with you because he's you know he's had a lot of key marketing roles in a lot of impressive and astute organizations: MLS, Gatorade, uh, Octagon. That is one of the world's largest uh, sports and, and media agencies. What is it that, uh, what is it that you take away from a from a talk like that, Kieran? Yeah, so you see that earlier on in his interview, the desire to learn, and that once you stop learning, you are dead. And I think when you look through his career, he's always seeking that that next adventure, that next challenge. That's really kind of going to kind of take him out of his comfort zone, and he doesn't just stay in areas or industries that he knows but it goes outside that bubble and it constantly seeks that kind of challenge and uh, yeah yeah that was yeah I was impressed by that that relentless curiosity uh, to to seek new challenges um, and being so diverse in the undertakings was for me uh, a greater motivation too in what drives one towards uh, towards adopting such roles so Without further ado, we'll 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 get to the to the chat. Uh, it's about forty five minutes, so uh, hopefully you enjoy it uh, as much as we do. So here's our uh, little convo with Mark Noonan. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, good morning, good afternoon to you guys. Morning, morning for me, and <laughs> thanks thanks for having me on. No, it's a pleasure. It's one we've been looking forward to for a while. Um, we kind of just want to jump right into it, don't we, Kieran? Because yeah, there's, there's a lot, so much to cover. Exactly, and it's a it's a very it's a fascinating career. You've, I mean, you worked for the Octagon, you have worked at Gatorade, you worked at the U.S. Soccer Federation, the MLS, the World Surf League. You've been CEO of one of Africa's most historical football clubs. You're founder of your own sports agency in Focal Sports that you've run for 15 years. I mean, it's a very impressive list. Do you ever look back and think, "Wow, I've." done and accomplished a lot of things uh i try not to look back too often is uh, what's what's done is done and the only thing that's promised is right now and 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 hopefully tomorrow so i i 
I, I, I try to take all those experiences and, and look forward into what might be the you know, what might be next on the on the agenda. Uh, but it has been uh, has been a, a very fortunate and varied varied career. I think listing all those, you probably are, are calling me old as well. But uh, <laughs> I said in our email exchange, I'm not sure I'm uh, cool enough for a bro pod, but uh, I'll, get, I'll give it my best shot. No, I'm, no, I think uh, you you are the perfect profile for this, actually. And with that, I'm just curious then, with such a list and such a diverse set of different challenges and, and roles, is there anything, what do you believe has driven you to take on all these challenges? I remember talking to you last year through email again and you said you asked as an advice for me you said what do you want to learn he said there's a there's a critical question because the second we stop learning we are dead and then you said hence one of the moments of insanity moving to africa which we will touch upon later is that kind of what drives you this relentless curiosity yeah i think it's definitely a curiosity uh there's there's no playbook and you know i always tell people they've got to find their own balance you know some of it was driven by wanting to be a a, a good father and that's one of the reasons why i left mls when i did uh because it, you know, that job required an incredible amount of travel um and uh just the long long hours uh given where we were so i wanted to be you know, a better father and closer to my kids as they grew up uh, but for the most part, I think uh, what you said earlier is absolutely right, is that you, know, you, you have to remain curious and you have to keep learning. Um, one of the reasons why I uh, took the World Surf League uh, chief commercial officer job is because that was a digital first global business where we owned essentially every important piece of the of the equation. And uh, given my age, I didn't grow up as a digital native. So I needed to be immerse myself in the digital world on a global basis and understand how that works. Otherwise, I would have become a dinosaur. And the fun part about that job is that you know I hired people that were younger and smarter than than I was, and I learned as much from them as hopefully they learned they learned from me. So it's it, it, it's constantly evolving yourself, trying to stretch, trying to learn. And, and do things that 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 are interesting to you, as opposed to um, you know getting bored in a, in a certain certain role and getting stale. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're a perfect living example of actually an, more of an action-oriented approach with that. When if we just go back then a bit, because how we connect in the first place is the fact that all three of us share a com a very significant common experience in Duke and. Uh, you also played for Duke. You also you won the 1986 national championship with Duke. Uh, tell us a bit about your experience from Duke and kind of how that has perhaps influenced you later on in life. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I owe uh, a lot to Duke because I had a great, great four years there. Uh, I have a daughter there now, so it, the, the legacy continues. Uh, my, I met my wife there, so we have a, a, a really strong ties, and, and, and I played with the current current coach, uh, John, John Kerr. Um, I have a bit of a conflict of interest, though, because my brother Mike is the head coach at Clemson. Right. And as you guys know, the Clemson rivalry is pretty pretty strong. So yeah. Yeah. when 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 Duke plays Clemson, who who do I root for? I I, I kind of hope for a tie, and that you know, Mike and John don't get <laughs> a, a tussle on the sidelines. <laughs> yeah, no, it's tough. Oh, Clemson's always a very very tough opposition. He's done yeah. really well there, and I think one of the top yeah. ranked teams this year as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 
But it was a great it was a great experience, and you know, for for somebody who had aspirations for playing beyond Duke, uh, I was fortunate to have the education because I had uh, I, I would say a, a pretty uh, dramatic knee injury between my sophomore and junior years, which uh, uh, limited any kind of you know, career after Duke. Uh, and so it was so fortunate to be able to fall back on not just a great education, but uh, also a network of people that to this day are really important in my life, both personally and, and professionally. And you, know, you, you, you really um, you, you really can't take that, that, for, that for granted. Yeah. Mark, could you talk a little bit about where soccer was at that point in America when you were at Duke? Because obviously we've experienced it. Um, you know, in the in the recent five years, but you experienced in the eighties. So, can you talk a, a little bit about the kind of differences then? Yeah, I mean, I would say that college soccer, the quality was much higher back then because there wasn't a professional league um, that guys could go to at that point. Outside of uh, the few that were able to essentially graduate and then go to go to Europe, you know, John Kerr being one of the first, if not the first, I think, to play in the English Premier League at Portsmouth. And and so all of the good players in the country were were in college, believe it or not. So guys like Tab Ramos, one of the the great U.S. players ever, was at NC State, and John Harks was at Virginia. So you had these you know, incredible players, and I would argue that. Because there were so few programs playing Division One soccer, and, and many of them were in the ACC, all the good ones, you had this consolidation of really, really good, good players. And I still think to this day that we as a country have produced uh, more good players, but fewer or about the same amount of great players. You know, Tab Ramos could be our starting center midfielder today on, on, on the U.S. national team. He was that good. Uh, obviously had a great career in Spain and other parts of parts of Europe, but it was a really interesting time because soccer was just starting to get its uh, get its get its get on its feet. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that's that's interesting. It's kind of a contrarian approach to to most people when they you know when they talk about the um, significance of the professionalization of college, but to hear uh, that due to a, a more of a concentration of lesser teams there was a more of a guarantee of, of quality and you I mean you and you've you worked with you worked with US soccer for much of your career and after Duke you spent it at Advantage International now known as Octagon one of the world's largest sports and entertainment in agencies uh, you worked with Gatorade uh, while they were spreading internationally and then you work with the US Soccer Federation as a chief marketing officer and then as executive VP of marketing MLS. So you've had, you've worked with a lot of big global brands and we'll get into the soccer bit a bit later, but I'm just curious, are there any consistencies in how you go by building a brand across industries or is it just on a case-to-case basis? Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the key word you just said is consistency. Um, there, there has to be a good good strategy in terms of what it is that you're trying to become with that brand. And then you have to consistently apply it across every single aspect of the business. And, and that's not just the visual things that you would see, a Nike swoosh or a Gatorade cooler on the sidelines of sports. That's how people act. That's the culture that gets created. 
that's importantly what your leadership represents to the to, to the marketplace because uh, especially today's in today's day and age uh, people you know are such skeptics and they'll they'll see through the bullshit immediately if it's not if it's not authentic so if you don't have a great strategy that's authentically and consistently applied um, you're going to get found out even if you have an amazing product at some point either the culture is going to crash or a consumer is going to figure out that you're not all it is that you say that you are and going to find alternatives because they're really easy to find in, in today's marketplace. So, you know, I, I would say strategy, uh, authenticity and consistent a- application are, are critical no matter what business or what brand you're trying to build. Yeah, so working for the U.S. Soccer Federation, you had a pretty cool experience of working um, and marketing for the U.S. Women's National Team. That actually won the 1999 FIFA Women's World Cup, but kind of more, more in more general terms, and developing the U.S. soccer brand at that time. What were the biggest challenges you were faced with, and what were you trying to get across? You know, the, the, interesting in that U.S. soccer you know, are, are best known for its sub brands, if you will, which are their national teams, and you know, particularly the men's, and and now particularly uh, the the women's and. At that time, uh, it was late the late 90s, the U.S. men's team had just um, completed the, the World Cup in France and went 0-3 um, and lost to Iran. So it was pretty much a, 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 almost as big a disaster of not quali- qualifying in the last cycle. Um, and so I was really fortunate that I had some, some really smart partners at, at Nike and, and IMG at the time that... Uh, partner with us to um, to maximize our, our commercial rights. And we sat down heading into 1999 saying, okay, let's take a deep breath here. The men's brand is really tarnished right now. Let's let's put that on, a sh- on the shelf a little bit as we look toward 99 where we've got a women's team and a women's World Cup. And what, um, what we had at U.S. Soccer at the time is that we had 16 national television dates on ABC and ESPN. And, and in 98, we put the men on 13 times and the women on three times. And in 99, we decided strategically, let's put the men on the shelf. And let's put the women on 13 times because we knew we, we, knew we had a, a really good team. We knew we had some special personalities like Mia Hamm, um, Michelle Akerstall, who to this day I still think is the best women's player ever um, and probably has never gotten her due because she was a generation before most of, most of the, the hype came. And um, you know, through some great advertising by Nike, through uh, I think we put them on 10 times prior to the start of the World Cup, people knew who this team was. People knew who some of the players were, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And we can never, you can, you can, you can never predict how big it's going to be. Mm. And and it essentially, you know, took over the country, which was which was pretty amazing. But you know, we could, would never take full credit credit for for what happened because that was a phenomenon. But if we didn't lay the seeds for it early on. I'm not so sure it would have gotten the steamroll effect that it that it got, and uh, a lot of credit, obviously, to Tony DeChico and the players, and having they were so good on the field and even better off the field, um, you know, and helping helping us create that, 
and it was it, again it was so authentic they weren't faking anything they really really loved each other and and fought as a team and and, and did some amazing things during a time like that when when u.s soccer is still on the up and coming it's still brand new i mean the mls was established 96 and you've got a, a successful women's national team and then the men less so maybe a bit s- similar to, to the situation where u.s soccer is right now with with a very strong women national team and the men less so how from from you being a chief marketing officer then and is trying to secure attention to the to the sport but also you know a return on investment what is the appeal then made to sponsors or broadcasters in this case espn abc in marketing a sport in which it still isn't is in its initial stages i mean i don't know if there's as big of a guarantee of term investment or is it more of an appeal rooted in hey be part of this this up-and-coming sport be part of this cultural change yeah i mean Part of it was you're selling the future. You know, you're selling the demographics. You're selling a a really unique audience that still exists today, where you have um, you know the uh, relatively um, well-to-do suburban soccer mom type families combined with a a, a growing audience in the Hispanic uh, marketplace that, you know, you don't have to teach soccer to, you don't have to, uh, you know, do anything except put a great product and a great environment in front of them and they'll come to it. So we're really selling the future. And the other thing is, you know, none of these companies are dumb. I mean, the business economics have to make sense. And it wasn't like they were writing huge checks for rights fees uh, to U.S. soccer at the time. Um, we owned some commercial inventory. They took care of production. So there was there, there, there was a, a sane economic um, uh, approach to the, the, the marketplace at the time that uh, that made it made it work for everybody, and and you have to think about um, whenever you're trying to build a brand or build a business is, do you take a short do you, do you prioritize short term money versus long term long term growth? So you know, do we do we take a check today, but limit our exposure because we either don't get enough broadcast or we don't get enough promotion or those sort of things, or do we take the you know the the flyer that you know, if we build it today with the right broadcast, the right promotion, um, five years from now, we're going to get a much, much bigger check. Right. You also mentioned how you target, you know, more of a suburban community, perhaps more of an Hispanic one, one in which the culture of soccer is more so ingrained from an early age. At what point was it or was it ever identified that soccer would prove highly attractive for this younger and more diverse demographic because as you see now with the growth of mls you see how the mls and, and, and soccer in general attracts you know more of that kind of demographic than perhaps normal americans who have their other sports like american football yeah. and, and basketball how right. how does that play into the consideration of how to to market the sport yeah i think with any within any business you have to find your points of differentiation and, and then you really have to lean hard into them, both in terms of how you execute against the business and, and, and how you promote yourselves. And, you know, we, we try to take a look in the marketplace with the established sports and entertainment and say, OK, what, what is our differentiator here? And, you know, I, I think it was 2002 
Uh, it was right after the uh, the U.S. men's team had lost a heartbreaker uh, in in Japan and Korea to Germany on a Howard Webb not calling a penalty, which we're still all bitter about. But uh, but any, anyway, it was the best run that, that the U.S. had ever had. And I ghost wrote, wrote an editorial for Commissioner Garber that ran in the New York Times, and we talked about how this is the league for a new America. We saw how America was all of a sudden changing so dramatically from a demographic standpoint, but that essentially we looked like the rest of the world. Um, and they're still using that today uh, as, as part of the positioning for the league because it is true. You know, America is looking more and more like the rest of the world through communications like this. We can have podcasts anywhere, 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 any, any time. And you know, the world is getting smaller and smaller. And there is only uh, one one game. Uh, with all due respect to my my friends in basketball, there's still only one game that truly is a global sport, and that's uh, that's the beautiful game. This podcast is sponsored by. Yep, you guessed it. Pimp Society, a sustainable Norwegian fashion brand that specializes in hand painting secondhand clothing. I would highly recommend you now at this point, if you listen to the third episode, to at least look at their Instagram at Pimp Society. Or if you want any inquiries or orders, uh, you can email them at pimpsocietyservice at gmail.com. Doesn't tr- does truly identify with uh, what we want to represent to uh, foster your uniqueness. So give them a look and, uh, you know, maybe maybe you'll make a purchase too. Now, back to our interview with Mark Noonan. Mark, you spent four years working for the MLS um, in the early 2000s and this was quite a challenging time for the league. Attendances were low. Most teams didn't have their own stadiums as well as being financially burdened. What was it like working for the league at this time and what were some of your kind of greatest challenges? That was a fire drill. Um, but we were fortunate at the time is that um, we had we had two things going for us. One, we had really strong owner, ownership groups, uh, particularly three of them: um, Phil Anschutz, uh, Lamar Hunt, and and Bob Kraft, uh, who had experience in other leagues and had the you know, the financial resources to think long term. Um, and it, it was interesting is that um, we, we you know, talk about you know setting your up yourselves up for long-term success um, you know we, we had to make some really difficult decisions um, in 2003-2004 we were at 12 teams at the time only only 10 of them had actually actual owners two of them were owned and operated by the league meaning all the other owners had to fund them we went to a meeting actually out here in Denver, at Mr. Anschutz's uh, offices, and you know I, I was it was let's see there was four of us from MLS Commissioner Garber, um, Ivan Gazidis who is the CEO of Arsenal and now AC Milan, Mark, Mark Abbott who's still at the league and, and myself, and we presented a, a a few different plans to ownership, and. One was status quo; it's going to take time. Another was we need to fold the you know a couple teams to get healthy, kind of retrench and get healthier. And, and kind of the the, the the third one was to fold the entire league, saying okay, you know if we can't do it, we can't do it. We gave it a good shot. And, and then the last one was uh, we had the strategy that there's not a lack of soccer interest in the United States. 
because you, you saw how popular it is in the women's game, the Hispanic, the youth game, participation levels were growing. We said it's just going to take some time. And what we need to do is tap into the non-MLS interest while we grow our ownership group, while we get our stadiums in place, while we get our TV deals in place. And it was it was interesting. The early days of MLS, the Hispanic audience actually felt a little threatened by us uh, the, the, because they, they didn't think the product was very, very good. We didn't understand candidly uh, how, how the best way to, to market them had all these crazy rules at the beginning like shootouts and things like <laughs> things like that yeah, yeah, yeah. It was and, and so it, you know it took us a little time to, to to figure out what the right equation was and the equation really was be authentic to the game and 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 it was interesting and i give mr anschutz mr hunt and, and mr Kraft all the credit in the world because um, we, we decided that we, we needed to retrench, so we folded two teams, Miami and Tampa, which was really painful, but it made the other teams that much stronger. Each one had an owner. And then we spent uh, $40 million to buy the U.S. Um, World Cup rights for, for 2002 and, and created this company called Soccer United Marketing which is the commercial arm that still exists. Um, and yeah, again, the theory was there's enough soccer interest. We, we just need to lean into that until MLS gets stronger and it could take 10 or 20 years. So we, we made that decision. We ended up selling $60 million instead of $40 million. So we had a nice, nice cushion there. Uh, the U S the, the, the men did great in, in, in the world cup. And, MLS can now build from a, a much healthier base with with ten teams, and now you're seeing you know the the, the amount of money that the, the the Charlottes are paying to get into the league, and you can you can look back and say you know that was a pretty good pretty good move at the time. That that's interesting. So not only are you working with building the brand that is MLS and how to market that. But there, in order to instigate wider cultural change, you have to focus on almost the, the non-MLS elements in, in, in a way of, I don't know, getting people into soccer to begin with. Is, mm -hmm. is, that, is, is that getting it right? Yeah. I mean, you had to do everything. And that's, a, that, that's a, the, the challenge and the beauty of a startup league. I mean, there wasn't, you know, whether it was you know, distribution of your content or infrastructure when it comes to stadium or training staff, um, you know, changing the rules, uh, rebranding a bunch of the teams that were uh, not necessarily um, authentic. Uh, you know, there were so many things that we have to do. And, you know, you, you, you look back, uh, you know, 20 in 20 years time and there's still one guy at the top that's been the leader of all that and that's that's commissioner garber who uh, if any everybody who cares about about soccer in this country has got to got to give him a, a round of applause because he you know he may not be perfect like like all of us but man he has really uh, steered that ship in a great direction and you know has some awesome owners that that that, that have been instrumental and uh you know i, I think um you know, to see where MLS is is today puts a, puts a big smile on my face. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So since your departure then in 2004, you kind of mentioned the growth of the league briefly there, but the league is now growing to 26 teams. There's a full of four more franchises to be added in the next two years. The games have now have an average attendance of 20,000. 
and you've had so many stars over the year that have played in the league, including Beckham, Henri, Kaka, Pirlo, Lampard and Gerrard, to name a few. Could you have ever imagined this sort of growth in this period of time? Um, I, absolutely. Yeah, we, we always felt that the MLS could be one of the great leagues in the world. It just needed, it just needed time. And if you think about uh, um, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs hadn't been in a Super Bowl in 50 years. You know, the NFL has been around for so long, and the MLS is still a, a, still a baby. It's still in its infancy relative to the established sports leagues around the world. So I, I, you know, it, it came perhaps a little bit faster than, than we could have imagined, but um, uh, I, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. It goes back to seeing where the world was going, the demographic changes, the, the fact that um, you know, in a day and age when people have much, much shorter attention spans, it's hard to sit through a, a four-hour NFL football game these days. Um, but you know with, with, with our football, two hours you're going to be in and out, and it's going to be you know, packed with action for the entire, entire two hours minus halftime. And that's attractive to you know, this day and age. The, the other thing that doesn't get a lot of credit is um, – is EA Sports in the FIFA game is that you know we always knew it would take a generation you know you, you needed a generation to grow up and have MLS to aspire to to as a reference point to understand um, but the the EA game the FIFA EA game was huge in terms of exposing kids um, who who may not necessarily even be players but then became an interest interested in the game. And you talk to this next generation, and they know more about every roster than than I'll ever ever know because of their experience playing that game. And it, it not only you know, provided great exposure, but also provided a, a great boost of credibility to the league. Yeah, I'm impressed. I'm I'm also impressed by the adaptability of the MLS because it definitely caught my attention. I mean, Be- I was a Beckham fanatic, and when he went to the LA Galaxy, you know. I was buying all the jerseys. I was watching the games. I was following avidly, but then now, now that they've got that attention, you're shifting away from those that designated player era. I mean, there still are those, but now you're recruiting younger players from South America. You're, identi- you're identifying and nurturing young talents in the form of Alfonso Davis and and Tyler Adams, and D- Commissioner Don Garber said also that. The league isn't supposed to just be a buying league. We want to be a be a selling league as well. How does, I mean, explain to us how how much is that initiated by Don Garber and the people around him? How is the decision making in, in terms of because you 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 said that to us earlier as well. This adaptability. You don't want to be uh, caught in the old ages. You need to adapt in order to to prove successful. Tell us a bit about the culture that is at the MLS or in US soccer for that matter. In terms of you know staying with the times, yeah. One one quick step back when you mentioned mentioned Beckham, a, a name that that people should know as it relates to Beckham is a guy named Tim Lewicki, who is the who was for many years the CEO of uh, the Anschutz Entertainment Group, and there were very few people in MLS or even in sports who think as big as Tim and are able to execute. And with the support of Mr. Anschutz, Tim had this. Uh, what most people would say was a, a, a crazy-ass idea to, to bring Beckham to L.A. 
uh, and he pursued it doggedly uh, with again with the support of Mr. Anschutz. And it, it was guys like guys like Tim who had had the vision of what the league could be. Um, and we're able to sell it to people like David Beckham, understanding what it is that, that, that Beck's needed in his life and career at that time. And it was a little rocky for a couple of years, and then it had some very happy ending. Um, but it was, it was guys like that that uh, are so critical to, to building something. But getting to, to, your, to the question you're at, I think you know, the flexibility of MLS is that you know, as MLS grows up as a league, um, they realize, and importantly, their players and the players' agents uh, realize that it's a global market that you have to play in. You can't you can't be a closed closed league if your aspiration is to be one of the best leagues in in, in the world. And there, there's no way at this stage MLS is going to keep Alfonso da- Alfonso Davis in in the league. He's just too valuable a, a commodity. But the beauty of it is, I believe, uh, I think the the transfer fee was somewhere in the twenty million dollar range. Well, twenty million dollars invested back into yeah, Vancouver's academy with a little chunk going to the league office is going to pay for some massive development and infrastructure at the MLS level. And you know, it's a it's a it's a big it's a big cycle. And if you know, I, I've I've always believed uh, you know, that football, you know, the, the best clubs um, in football are the ones who are best at player arbitrage. Um, Dortmund probably the, being the one that is, is the most high profile where they, they buy assets and they develop them and they sell them. You know, Red, Red Bull and all of their clubs is doing a great job on that as well, identifying young players who have talent and buying them low and then finding the, you know, the big clubs down the road who are willing to pay you a premium for them. And if you do a, a good job in terms of managing you know the arbitrage of your players you can you can win on the field um make money and then you know and, and then continue to replenish with the fees that you get when you sell yeah without a doubt um so let's just move on to you founding your own company vocal sport in 2005 and it would seem this was your sole priority um for you know the 10 years or so after that and going from working as a marketing officer for the MLS and many corporations before that to then running your own company must have been a drastic shift in mentality. Can you talk us through this time for you and how much of an influence did your accumulation of experiences and expertise over the years help you run your own company? Yeah, I mean, I think that was exactly it. I felt that the time was right personally and professionally to to give that a shot knowing that if for some reason it was a disaster and i wasn't able to uh fund the the lifestyle that we had become accustomed to then i could probably go back and get a job in a more established established place so i weighed the pros and the cons and really the the big pro was i had you know two two daughters who were two and four at the time and that i wasn't seeing very often because of the, the uh, commuting into New York from Connecticut and then traveling like crazy for, for, for MLS. And, and so, you know, for 10 years, uh, I was able to um, really uh, have, a, have a great, great lifestyle. Uh, and I don't, I don't think I missed a thing of importance for 10 years as my kids grew up and was able to have some phenomenal clients during that time. I, I joke that I was one client away from disaster every time, every day, but um, you know, we, 
we somehow somehow made it work. I partnered with larger agencies at time and 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 really had a great had a great run on it and that run still goes goes today. But if you if you believe in yourself and you've got good relationships and you can create value, um, it's a, it's actually a really nice uh, nice thing to, to to be able to fall back on at, at any time. Right, and then you you're able to then uh, you know follow your kids grow up and and then eventually you join the World Surf League in 2014, um, and that was that was the time you came by Duke and and you presented yourself to the team, and I remember that well because I thought this guy must have the coolest job in the world working with the World Surf League. Tell us a bit about that experience and was there a form of cultural transition into a new? I don't know, new way of doing things because, you know, you have the certain surfing connotations and the lifestyle that comes with it. Was there a was there a, a drastic shift in a way? Yeah, I guess the key thing is understanding what you don't know is mm-hmm. that yeah, I, 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 I'll paddle out, but I can barely stand on a board. Uh, right. The waves win a lot more than I do. But I understood the I understand business and commercialization of a business. And so whenever I uh, got to the point where I, I, I you know, didn't know enough, I would lean into our commissioner, Kieran Perot, who ran all competition, or another colleague of, of mine who ran all the events, who's got a long history in surfing. And I, I just pull the ex- experts in. You just have to, but you have to acknowledge what you don't know. Is again, if you're not authentic and you try to bullshit, you're going to be found out really, really, really quickly. How was it then navigating that commercialization of a sport that, in its essence, represents a lifestyle that is innately rebellious and perhaps a bit anti-establishment in a way is it are you worried that the because there's no doubt i mean the, the some of the the partnerships you should you secured i mean you tripled revenues secured partnerships with big global brands such as corona visa tag Heuer, airbnb and all those were you worried that the professionalization of the of the sport would move it away from the core community um uh, not not really. I mean, th- there's always going to be a faction in the core community that are real, what we call purists. Yeah. And you know, no matter what you do, if you try to commercialize, they're, they're going to be a little bit upset because if you, if you increase the popularity of the sport they love, that means there's more people to share the waves with. <laughs> and, 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 and there, there, there's going to be a, a, a small handful of folks that, that, that do it. But when you commercialize the, the, the WSL, there's so few people that can actually compete at that level. And to, to, to see these men and women, and that was the beauty of the WSL, is you had in one league, you had you know, the best men and the best women in the world competing on, the, on a global basis. You know, to, to showcase that like it had never been showcased before with these incredible production, production values uh, and, and to do it live and in real time, you know, the, the community had never had that before. And so the majority of, of, of folks that love surfing were incredibly stoked about what it is that we were doing because we were offering them a, a, a incredible product at no cost to them as long as they had an internet connection. Right. <laughs> no, I was, so, going, yeah, I was going through some of the YouTube videos in, in, ahead of this uh, and just to get, a, get an idea and the, and the production itself and the people that amass at the beaches and stuff, it, it seemed like a very uh, coherent product mm-hmm. yeah and then the challenge you had with the with surfing is that the people that care about surfing 
care incredibly deeply. They care about the environment. They care about the sport. And it's almost like they care about that more than anything in their lives. Like if there's a swell, they're like, yeah, sorry, I'm not getting married today. I'm going to go. I'm going to go <laughs> it, it, it chase, chase, chase the swell. And that's, that's how crazy. The issue is that, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's global, but it's global in pockets. You know, Brazil, South Africa, Australia, the U.S., some of some of West, Western Europe, but it's not certainly not like a, a sport like soccer. And it, a lot of people love the lifestyle, but they're very intimidated by the sport itself in terms of paddling out and standing on a board. And so, you know, growing growing it is going to take take time. It's going to take a, a lot of time, actually. Well, at least I mean, moving in the right direction now with with it being introduced in the Olympics for the first time. So I guess you you have you know you play some sort of role in that, I'd imagine. Yeah, that 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 should help. Yep, and that was uh, that was something that uh, our, our team and the leadership at the time uh, very much uh, you know, pursued with the International Surfing Federation, and um, you know helped to help to make that that happen. And and that's going to be that's going to be exciting. The the, the worry is. Um, you know, surfing is only go- as good as the wave, and um, the worry at the t- the time that the Olympics are held, um, the waves aren't necessarily um, the best in Japan at that time. So hopefully they'll they'll get lucky and find a window in the in in, in within the Olympics to have some uh, a great swell and and a, and, a, and a wonderful competition. No, I can't wait to follow. Now, because you've done so much, we're going to move on even more to something I would say is even crazier, is you then becoming the CEO of Accra Hearts of Oak, uh, one of Africa's most storied clubs and undoubtedly Ghana's biggest club. Now, I read that you linked with the owner, majority owner, through LinkedIn, you have a meeting in New York, and then a few days later, you're in Accra, the capital. <laughs> can, can you just elaborate on what is going on during those days because that that sounds you know <laughs> that sounds like a crazy story yeah it's a little poetical since it was about a month later all right okay uh, we'll <laughs> go with we'll go with days <laughs> yeah so the, the 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 majority owner is a guy named toby afidi the 14th yes 14th is is correct <laughs> and um in, in addition to being a a uh, a successful businessman um he is uh, what's called the president of the National House of Chiefs in Ghana, so um, the, the, which is the, the the leader of the indigenous people and all all the chiefs and the tribes in, in in Ghana. So you think about Ghana; it has two governments. It's got a democratically elected government, no different than the United States. They have two political parties that actually hate each other more than Republicans and Democrats. If you think that's possible. Um, and then they have this whole separate government called the, you know, the House of Chiefs. And the 4,000 chiefs send their top 50 representatives to the House, and those 50 representatives elect a leader um, for a four-year term. So Toby was the president of the National House of Chiefs. So he's the chief of all 4,000 chiefs in Ghana, so one of the most, you know, most important uh leaders in the, in, in the country, in addition to being a businessman. Uh, he has a, a Yale MBA, a really fascinating, fascinating man. And so we hit it off in the first first meeting. He was in New York because he ironically was on the board of the World Trade Centers, and they had a meeting in New York. Uh, and he works out of the World Trade, Trade Centers in, in Accra. And um, and so we had a meeting, and, and I said, all right, um, 
I, I'm thinking as a consultant right now, yeah, I'll come over, I'll be a consultant, I'll help the club. But I said, you know, I, I need to see if this is this is real. I, I, I mean, I, I've seen God. I've seen Ghana beat the U.S. in the World Cup a couple times. I I know how talented those players are. I know that um, you know when thinking again with player arbitrage, how relatively inexpensive they are because of the market they come from. And so the first question I, he said, well, we're playing a, an important match versus our arch rival in a month. I said, okay, I'll come over, but you need to send me a business class airfare ticket. That was that was kind of my first test to see, okay, if this guy is legit, let's see if he'll come up. Lo and behold, you know, Delta Airlines, direct New York to Accra, business class, shows up. So I go over there, and this is I think October, and had a had a great five day trip over there. Uh, saw a lot of Ghana. Um, you know, watched them unfortunately lose to their arch rivals. Saw the potential, and then we talked for a couple months to see whether we could make it work and on a personal standpoint it was a good timing because my oldest daughter was away in college and my youngest who's now at duke was uh, would would have been graduating high school uh, the following year so we were just about to be empty nesters my wife and i and and so lo and behold the, you know the talks progressed and uh you know the january i guess of 2018 i agreed to uh, to go over there and, and and be the ceo and and minority in a lot of ways owner you said early in your ten, tenure that the club was like a 107 year old startup company what do you mean by that yeah, I mean, it, it has this, this great, great history, uh, but due to the nature of being part of a developing country, all the things that we take for granted, whether that's computer systems, scouting systems, branding, marketing, stadium infrastructure, uh, distribution of content, um, you know, all, all those sort of things that we take for granted are a, a couple steps back um, from what we're what we're used to in the developed world and so that's that's what i was talking about not it has an incredible authentic history um great 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 following um i think i think it, there's nine million fans in a country of 30 million for this club um, so it's uh and 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 you, you don't have to you know, you know, yeah, teach soccer to anybody in Ghana. It's, it's almost like they come out of the womb and they're they're playing. <laughs> so, so but that was that was uh, that was part of the challenge. And another part of the challenge was you know understand you know adapting to the culture, um, living as a minority. Um, obviously, there's not a lot of um, of of white Americans uh, over there, particularly ones in in a position that I was in, which was incredibly visible. And I was in the 107 year history was the first white man to to sit in that in that chair. So there was uh, they they call us obronies, which is not the uh, not a derogatory term. It's just kind of what they what they call call the the, the white people over there. Yeah. So Mark, it seems like Ghana is a bit of an enigma. Uh, it has all the necessary ingredients to become a global superpower: political sta- stability, a grown economy great weather, passionate supporters, and most importantly, an abundance of playing talent. Yet, early on, you issued a passionate plea for Ghanaians to put local football first, which you believed was the cause rather than the symptom of the corruption the league struggled with. What will that take? You know, I, I, I'm, 
I'm hopeful right now that it's going to start building itself back up. It's going to take time and infrastructure and things that are much bigger than football. When you talk about a developing country where there, you know, sadly, there is a, a fair amount of corruption that, 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 that creeps into the system and that then creeps down into, into every industry, including, including football. But it's really the basic infrastructure of, uh, you know, I, I had a player on my, on, on my team who I believe was, in my estimation, the best physical specimen I've ever seen on the football field. He was left footed. He was six foot three. He could run like the wind. Um, but he was not taught the fundamentals, both from a, an education standpoint and a, and, and from a, just a technical standpoint to be able to get to the next level. And it was it was sad to me because I was like, man, if we had this kid um, and he got the proper education and fundamentals at a young age, it's did he a Drogba? I mean, that's a, that's the type of ability that he had. And and you look at a place. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, what Tom Vernon is doing at Right to Dream. Um, you know, I heard about the program, yeah. But it's a uh, you know Tom Tom twenty years ago kind of started to figure it out um, and and he he you know, developed a school with a, a football academy attached to it and has been doing wonderful work in terms of you know of of you know taking a very small unfortunately group of of, of players who have some academic aspirations and not only giving them a great education for Ghana, but also teaching them in football. And then if they are good enough, uh, you know, sending them on in their, their world, both from an education and from a football perspective. And you almost need a hundred Tom Vernon's over there. Right. Yeah. Both Kieran and both Kieran and myself have played against the Fairland because they do end up uh, being recruited by some of the some of the better college teams yeah, and a lot right. of them end up going into to the MLS draft and, and forming yeah. careers which mm-hmm. is, and I think it's there's a growing amount of, yeah. of players yeah. doing that yeah and you look at there's 600 or something uh, Ghanaians playing in professional leagues outside of Ghana and that that number could be 6000 i mean that that's how much talent exists that either needs to be nurtured or discovered or you know not ruined by you know bad agents and and, and and bad actors in the system. All right. Before we let you go, Mark, I just wanted to kind of bring it all together. And I mean, you've had such an incredible experience at a lot of different places. I was just curious then across, across all these different companies and all that, what are some of the, are there some people that have had left a lasting impression on you in terms of maybe from a work standpoint, from a, a life standpoint. I know you also had the chance to work with the late David Stern as well, the former NBA commissioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, a kind of I, I tried to take um, things from everybody I worked with in, in in for whether that was Don Garber. I had an incredible boss at, at Gatorade named Sue Wellington. Um, a guy named Harlan Stone uh, and, and Phil DiGiotto at Advantage slash Octagon. Just, just you know, really smart people with integrity, and um, you know those are the, the those are the type of people that I uh, hopefully are reflected in in how I how I act and and, and, and treat people. And you know what, what something that Phil DiPicciato told me, and Phil's still at Octagon. He's one of the founders of the company and, and runs their athlete business. And he just took me, sat me down early on, and said, "This is a people business, and ne- never forget that." 
No, it's about it's about people and relationships and you know being able to communicate and understanding with value chain. And yeah, you know, I've never forgotten that. And I think that um, that has served me served me served me very well because I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But um, you know, I hopefully you know, people that I've met over the course of my career will take my phone calls because they know I'm not going to waste their time. And I'm going to try and add value to the equation and be a good friend and be there if they need me for anything. Absolutely. So, Mark, we've just spent the last 45 minutes talking about your crazy and cool adventures. Do you have any idea where or what your next adventure will be? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm back uh, doing a bunch of advisory work. I'm working with a great company um, called uh, the Platypus Neuro in the neuroscience space, which is uh, – uh, we believe it's the next frontier of uh, of sports performance. Um, when you, you know, the, the the theory is that you can train your brain no different than you can train train your body, and I, I think we maybe not have maxed out on kind of the the physiological things, whether that's eating better or sleeping better or lifting or running or everything else. But we're we're getting to the point where we know a lot about that. But we don't we don't know enough about the you know, the science of the of the brain, and um, and and this isn't sports psychology or meditation. This is actually real brain science, and 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 how do you train? All three of our brains are different, and how do you understand? You know, do an assessment of what my brain looks like or your brain, and how do you train that brain to? Uh, perform at a higher level so it's a it's the next frontier of performance and it's still really early so i'm spending a lot of time with that which is really really fun so can we expect to see it integrate as part of you know the sports science department within within clubs then at some point yeah i i would think so i think probably sooner rather than later too this is coming pretty fast and uh, i hope hopefully the you know the colleagues that i'm working with and i can can you know, bring some products to market that resonate with uh, with the end end consumer uh but whether it's us or there there are others um you know this this is this is something that's going to come pretty quickly well that's uh, very exciting. I'm excited to follow that. Um, yeah. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to, 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 to talk to us. Uh, we learned a lot. I mean, there are I, there are so many other things we'd ask you, but we yeah. have only have an hour. So <laughs> thank you very much, Mark, for, for taking the time. Uh, you're, here. you're welcome. I appreciate you guys, uh, guys reach, reaching out. And if uh, you want to do it again sometime, just let me know. We'd love to, Mark. So thank you again. Thank All you right. so much, Mark. Right. You've been a great guest. Go Duke. Go yeah, Duke. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to BroPod. And thank you if you did, in fact, stay to the very end. Uh, appreciate that. Um, hopefully it was, uh, it was what you expected and more from a very well-experienced guy within the sports industry arena. Um, so you can find him on Twitter at MDNoonan. Uh, we will be, uh, we will be uh, supplementing... Uh, this episode with further information as to uh, as to his uh, undertakings and what he's done so t- stay tuned for that and um, if you have a chance we'd uh, highly appreciate you sharing with your friends subscribing and reviewing see you in a couple of weeks